Welcome to the Center for the Performing Arts at Penn State. I'm Communications Director Laura Sullivan, and you're in tune with previews. Hey there, Daddy, make up your mind. I've been waiting such a long, long time now, baby, you never, because I've been so good. We're jazzing up the joint on Saturday, September 29th with singer Nina Freelon and the Count Basie Orchestra. Give a listen to an evening of American Songbook Classics and Basie Big Band Standards. Previews editor John Raffis spoke by phone with Freelon about her southern roots, her northern childhood, her unusual path to an acclaimed singing career, and her new project with the Count Basie Orchestra. So you're going to be here at the end of September with right. the Count Basie Orchestra. Um, right. What can we expect to hear that night? Well, um, this project, um, my guesting with the Basie Orchestra, was started as a celebration of his 100, the 100th anniversary of his birth a couple years ago. Special arrangements were written for me by Dennis Wilson. And we're going to be honoring some of the many singers who've been with that band. Everybody's been with Cal Basie. Ella, Sarah, Joe Williams, Billy Holiday, early in the day. Will you be performing in both sets with them, or will they do a set and then you'll perform in the second um, set? I think the way we're going to do it at Penn State is that the Basie Orchestra will come on first and play some of the things that you probably recognize and know the band for, like One O'Clock Jump and Little Darling, April in Paris, things like that. Right. And then they will bring me on in the second half of the show, and Dennis Wilson will conduct um, my charts with the band. One of the singers you mentioned that is associated with the Count Basie Orchestra is Billie Holiday, and of course your last CD that came out a couple of years ago is a CD that uh, pays tribute to Billie Holiday. It's called Blueprint of a Lady, Sketches of Billie Holiday. It's a, a really beautiful recording. One of the things that I think is amazing about it is that we, you know, we've all heard lots and lots of Billie Holiday, and you can never hear enough Billie Holiday. Uh, and we've certainly heard a number of tribute CDs. But as I listen to this, I always am struck that I, I recognize the songs, but they sound so different. They sound very much in your voice. Well, I think there's a lot of different ways to to offer tribute to someone. I was trying to offer tribute to her sense of uniqueness, her the fact that she really invented herself. And before Billie Holiday, there was no one who sounded like her. After Billie Holiday, there were many who attempted a soft, drawly type of vocal rendition on some sad minor ballads. <laughs> and it's still happening quite a bit. And it's still happening. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? That's okay. If that's the way you see, as an artist, if that's the way you see yourself offering tribute to someone, that's fine. For me, I saw the best way I could personally offer tribute is to try to, to try to meet Billy Holiday at the common ground, not of the voice, but the common ground of the material, to see if, like she, I could find something unique and personal in these same tunes that she performed. 
you mentioned that one of the things that you were drawn to was Billie Holiday's sense of inventing herself. I, I think the same could be said of you. Um, you. You've taken a rather unique path to get to where you are. You got a degree from Simmons College in Boston in healthcare mm-hmm. administration, mm-hmm. and you actually worked in that field for a while. Mm-hmm. Yes. What made you want to switch from healthcare administration to being a full-time singer? Well, I, I always sang in church, mm-hmm. but it was not with a, you know, a professional dream or goal. My parents didn't really think that, you know, going to school to study music was a really great use of, of my opportunities as a young woman, as a person who did well in school. They didn't really understand. Why would you go to school to learn how to do something you already know how to do? So, and, and plus all the, you know, difficulties of a life in the arts, blah, blah, blah. Right. And so I pursued, and they were like, if you want to sing, you can always do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found after working in the field for a while that, that the, the thing that really called me, that really, you know, that I really missed was my, was my music. And I think maybe we are the first generation of children who've been told you can do whatever you want to do. My parents did not get that message. They did not get a chance to go to college. They went through segregated schools in the South. So in them telling me and my brother and sister, you can be, do whatever you want, that was a new thing to come out of a parent's mouth. (laughs) That's a pretty powerful message. It's pretty powerful. So you grew up in the South? No, I grew up in, in Cambridge. But my parents are all first-generation Southerners. They all, and, and in fact, I lived in a community where everybody was from the South. Interesting. Um, Georgia, Alabama, all these people came up in the 40s and the 50s looking for better job mm-hmm. opportunities. So they brought with them their culture and their religious practices and their way of cooking and their way of talking. And, you know, my parents, well, actually my father sort of has a New England accent now. But my mom still has a real Southern accent. Interesting. So you you grew up in a cold version of the South. That's right. <laughs> and then you, after after school, you um, wound up in Durham, North Carolina. Right. I came down here originally to go to grad school to get um, my master's in public health, and I chose. I got into school, but then I decided to work um, for a while, try to pay off some of those student loans. <laughs> And um, got married, started my family, never completed my graduate education. And it was after my children were born that I really, um, really realized that what I was called to do, what I was put on this planet to do was, was to sing. And it was your, your husband, um, Phil, who I believe is an architect, who right. helped to prompt that along, didn't he? Absolutely. I mean, he, he gave me what we would call tough love, <laughs> he would say. You know, you can't use us as an excuse for your unrealized dreams and desires. If you want to do this, you can, you can do it, and I'll be there to help. But you know, don't mope and groan about, you know, I got these kids. I'm living in this, you know, nowhere USA town. You know, I, this is not the jazz mecca of anywhere. <laughs> and where there's a will. There's a way. There's a lot I needed to learn at the beginning. You know how to put together a repertoire. What does this? What does improvisation mean? Um, you know, what does it? What does it? What, what are the the goals of you as an artist? What do you want to say? How do you want to say it? All of these things were questions that had no answer to at the very beginning. 
I read early on that you went to a um, jazz camp at UMass. Mm-hmm. Several, um, several years I went there. With um, Dr. Billy Taylor and Youssef Latif, Max Roach. And that ignited the fire? That gave me um, a basis upon which to build. And some lifelong friends and mentors came out of that uh, relationship. Plus the camp was designed and open to all ages. So there were 16-year-olds who, who just really liked to sing jazz, and there were 70-year-olds who, who have loved this music and uh, retired grandmas. So it was really a great environment. We, uh, we were like a little family. Mm-hmm. We worked in combos. I mean, I learned how to, how to put together a, a little lead sheet chart. And, you know, <laughs> it was just great. Back in Durham, obviously, had to get your feet wet on stage, and and I was reading that um, some of your early gigs were in restaurants. Yeah, we live in a semi-dry state, i.e. there are no bars. Mm -hmm. Everything is a private club, has to be a private club. So where you found yourself honing your craft is in restaurants. That must be a challenge to to gain an audience's attention when they're when they're eating. <laughs> yeah, there's a very fine balance that one has to um, create. You start duo. That's what I found worked for me. Mm-hmm. You start duo, and you're doing sort of soft tunes, and people's attention is divided. And as the night thins out, more people are coming in just for drinks and dessert to hear the music. And so you can get a little more raucous and add your bass player uh, <laughs> and maybe even a percussionist or a drummer mm-hmm. um, as the night gets, gets, uh, gets a little later. And then in some places, they're so small, they're only willing to move two tables out of the way. So that meant it was a duo evening. And so I did a lot of work with guitar, mm-hmm. vocal and guitar. Did you learn lessons then that you find that you're still using now that you're performing on stages in front of hundreds or thousands? Absolutely. I mean, every if I had money, lots of it, <laughs> I would I would have a grant for young artists that would allow that would just pay for them to play on different size stages. Because I can always tell when a singer has only been working in a duo setting or mm-hmm. accompanying his, himself or herself in a small area because they don't use the stage. Yeah. And you have to learn how to use a big stage. And if you've never had that experience, which how would you if you were just really new? Right. Um, and and there, there are not people who are really working in artist development in terms of trying to teach them how to occupy certain kinds of spaces. And you also see the opposite. You see people who are used to doing outside festivals are coming to a small venue, and they're like blowing your ears right. off your head because they're not aware of the space that they're in. There are some spaces that are quite large but feel intimate. There are others that are built to be intimate, but for some architectural reason, they're just not. When you come to Penn State on uh, September 29th, it'll be your first visit here, and I can tell you that we have a very large venue. We we do a lot of we do a lot of jazz, but uh, our auditorium seats 2,500. So oh, wow. the acoustics are good, but uh, you will be playing to a large that's <laughs> large great. area. That's you, great. I think when you have a big band, that's totally yeah, appropriate. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I think that'll work very well. 
I hope there's enough room in the aisles for people to dance because... Well, we have an interesting... Um, we have what we like to call European seating. We do not have a center aisle. We have side aisles. So okay. So we'll, we'll just push people to the ends and, <laughs> and they can dance out there. Okay. <laughs> you met Ellis Marsalis in about 1990, and that was, that was a turning point for you, wasn't it? Right, yeah, it was. Ellis um, still a wonderful friend and mentor. Um, what did he teach you? Well, first of all, he heard me sing at this this Southern Arts Federation Jazz Forum. I was one of six groups chosen from the region to perform. Mm -hmm. And he, he speaks to me afterwards and he said, you sound good. That was it. If you know yeah. Ellis, <laughs> that was high praise. That was it. He didn't, like, pull out all the adjectives or any of that. He was like, right. you sound good. Then he said, who are you listening to? And I told him, you know, Ella, Sarah, Carmen, Nina Simone. He said, well, have you heard of, you know, Ethel Ennis? Have you heard of Lorez Alexandria? Have you heard of Etta Jones? All these singers who are wonderful song stylists, but who had not crossed my path because their commercial success was not so right. huge. You know, I stayed in contact with him through the mail about, you know, this record or that record or who to listen to and which instrumentalist to listen to for improvisational ideas and what just, you know, a wealth of information and knowledge from this man that he just freely, um, you know, gave. And so I will always be grateful to people like him. Dr. Billy Taylor is another mentor. Um, Youssef Latif is another one who just, from Youssef Latif, I won an NEA grant and studied improvisation with him. And, you know, these angels along the way who, who just have shared their vast knowledge about not just the music, but um, what it means to be an artist and defining for yourself what, what that means mm -hmm. and how that's going to play out in your life. And every situation is unique. It seems that, that some of the great jazz vocalists of our day are women, and, and that's probably not unusual. It has always seemed like at least in since World War II, most of the great jazz vocalists have been women. You know, you and, and Diane Reeves and Cassandra Wilson come to mind who are, are women who are, are no longer youngsters but um, have really come into their own and have a sound that's very distinctively their own and, and you, you seem very confident and something that's very different than the pop music world where, you know, it seems to all be about, you know, 19-year-olds jiggling their stuff. Mm. Um, is that really just because jazz is, is a more sophisticated music, do you think? Or are there other things that play into... It really seems like you, you have to pay your dues and get to a point where you can reach that comfort level. I think it's a refined art form, number one. Pop music operates with a different set of goals. You have to really look at the goals before you can make a judgment on whether someone, you know, about, about the things that push people to do different things. Um, and pop musicians, even ones that came up in the 50s, had a certain shelf life. The shelf life is getting shorter because pop is of the moment, a particular moment. Jazz, on the other hand, is something that we have an expectation to, um, to be more in line with the goals of art, art creation. And that takes time. It just takes time. It's not add water and store. It's not in instant. And I think the people who enjoy this music also enjoy watching an artist grow and Definitely. develop and change 
and explore and all of these values. Um, I mean, they, they don't really value exploration and pop music. Mm-hmm. They don't want to hear your exploration. If you have a hit, they want to hear some more of that. Yeah. At least in the short term, until somebody new with their new thing comes along. At the same time, your exploration, even in jazz music, can get you in trouble because people are like, you know what, I liked you better when you were doing <laughs> that other stuff over there. Right. How come you can't you you can't do more of that? You know, you know why why are you pushing our boundaries? We want, you know, we want some good old standards sung in a good old standard way. So, uh, you know, it's it, for me. Part of me realizing my artistic goals and my goals as a human being have to do with looking at the future of this music and not driving the vehicle, always looking in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to stand on the shoulders of those who came before you. But if this music is to remain vital and relevant, we have to, um, first of all, find some new stories. Um, where are the new songs that are telling new stories and we have to you know understand that people are living complicated lives so where are the stories that sort of relate to that that's how we are we're able to stay connected with an audience get into the swing with the count basie orchestra and special guest nina freelon saturday september 29th at eisenhower auditorium tickets are on sale now purchase online at www.cpa.psu.edu or by phone at 1-800-ARTS-TIX. For the Center for the Performing Arts, I'm Laura Sullivan.